Then it feels like this one is like a different pie, and it's like, it's sitting out there on the sill, and it's got no whipped cream, and there's like no nice holes in it at all. The frills are kind of all fucked up, and you're like, I'm not sure about this pie. <laughs> but you kind of just eat it and eat it, and then you're like, you reach a point like midway through the pie where you're like, whoa, this is, wait a minute, this is really good. This is a really strong, good aftertaste, even though it looks kind of <laughs> shitty. Think the politics in the Star Wars prequels was like the weakest part. It's what everybody complained about because it was like boring, dumb, and unrealistic. <laughs> and then you get to today where all of our politics is about trade <laughs> and like votes of no confidence. Uh... <laughs> And how, and just like all this endless debate about how the Republic no longer functions. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you know, I used to think this was dumb, but then reality caught up. So like the prequels, looking back, <laughs> are, like really hold up. You know, I don't really know how I feel about the Decade and Review stuff in general, actually. Yeah. I feel kind of the same way about it. Like, uh, I, I think that kind of thing is useful, you know, in, in right. general, but it's so, I don't know, whenever something gets like memefied, it just feels like canned in a way. Right. Cause like everyone's using the same format yeah. and all that. Right. I agree um, with that. Yeah. It, well, what's interesting for me about like this decade in particular, and like, maybe you feel the same way being the same age, but like, it's the first decade that, like, I've been an adult for right. most of it. And so just, like, experiencing all the twists and turns of the decade and being able to remember, you know, like, the first Obama inauguration, the second one, and, like, uh, you know, all the all these events in between of, I don't know, like... Especially, I don't know, I, I th think about particularly, like, political stuff, right? But uh, whenever uh, talking with people who are just, like, a few years younger than me, uh, I'm like, well, if you remember in the first Obama race, it was like this. And it was like, maybe you don't because you were in middle school, but, like, you know, oh, but, <laughs> yeah. That's so strange. Imagining yeah. a world where I don't remember the first Obama race is kind of weird. Yeah. Because it feels weirdly shaping, like mm -hmm. just important, you know? Yeah. I, I had a, a conversation with a friend where he brought up the interesting point that like, it's totally arbitrary. There's no reason to look at, you know, this end of the year thing that's happening as like any bigger a deal than the end of like a month or the end of any year, right? Like the end of 2018 mm -hmm. is functionally the same as the end of 2019, right? It's just how we've shaped a calendar and built certain things and such. So it, it feels that way on one hand, but then at the same time, you're like, man, 2020, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I understand that kind of argument but at the same time you could just break it down another level and say like oh well why should january 1st and december 31st be any like significant right any more significant than any other two days kind of like and i i don't know you could be you know hyper rational and reductionist about it and i think there's some merit to the like if you want to make a change in your life you know do it whenever like do it now and not like wait for some arbitrary milestone right because that's normally how people think about it but right. you know there's a reason why we have these things etched in our calendar just because it's useful like as a society to set aside some time right where like everybody's doing it at once yeah and uh and like as a reminder to individuals to do it and uh and i think like it makes sense also to do it on a broader scale like on the turning of a decade and also like there are a bunch of practical reasons why the transition from this year to next year will be significant like there's the census and there's an yeah. election and you know like <laughs> again with like political stuff but you, you like there are like 
practical reasons why 2020 is going to be a big year. <laughs> so It's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Do you think that there's do you think that there's like a need, like a human need to have that stopgap period where you sit and you reflect and you take a time to just make a lot of big resets and big changes? I think like reflection is uh, just a useful thing to do. I don't know, like basic human need. I don't know if I would go that far, but it seems like everybody does it and every society at some point has some like ritual for it usually around the end of the year um whatever that year is for them you know but uh i i think it's it's definitely worthwhile and like since human beings are social creatures it makes sense to not just have everyone do it individually on their own time like they're watching a netflix show but like to do it together uh you know so uh yeah like i i don't really i think maybe like teenage jay would have been like this is all just social construct man (laughs) and 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 now my approach to social constructs is like yeah and like most of them exist for a reason (laughs) i don't know much more like functionalist view (laughs) but yeah yeah so what you're saying is 2009, Jay, <laughs> yeah, compared exactly. to 2019, Jay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I can make that comparison because I'm doing this useful process of review right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. I think it's, yeah, I I agree. You know, it, it's one of those things where you, you have to accept a, a certain level of like social function in being human you know it makes sense for everybody to gather together and reflect on things all at once because otherwise then all your friends would be reflecting on stuff all the time and that would honestly probably be super annoying yeah well you you can't right like there's a a reason why you have to do you can't like reflect on things all the time you always have to do it like after you completed some project You, you know you can't just be like meta reasoning about like why you're doing work on something while you're doing it it's like no the the deadline's still there man yeah yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. oh and so. i've done that before i've made that mistake <laughs> before right yeah um, i agree with that i think a decade is a good a solid uh kind of snapshot too or a year too it is arbitrary where you set that snapshot but i do feel like you have to have a snapshot and then making it like a bigger social one that everybody jumps in on does also enrich it a lot and then everybody's sort of in the mood to talk about that thing and to reflect and you can bounce your reflections off of other people you can see if like you have a shared reflection because I mean, the thing you're saying about 2009, Jay, being like, this is all just the system, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been there. <laughs> you know, 2009, yeah. Austin, I think, was a, was a little different in, in, in some ways of that focus. But, oh, yeah, that, that was there, too. So, Yeah, and I think also that this decade interview makes a lot more sense just based on you know, where I am in life versus if I were to try and do the same yeah. thing in 2010 to like 2000, I was like, well, in 2000, I was in second grade <laughs> and in 2010, I'm, uh, you know, like a junior in high school. Yeah. Like, let's talk about all my personal, gr- you know, like it doesn't, That's true. you know, reviewing your growth between the ages of seven and 17, like, I don't know, eh. it's, it's not that, you, you know, you right. learned how to read and write better and do you know like there's a lot of things that happen in your teenage years but uh it's not a whole lot of like self-directed growth no Um, totally yeah yeah it's something like your parents would do for you almost you know yeah they're interested in in having seen you grow all this way but like it's not something i don't know it's yeah it's not something that that is is interesting to yourself yeah i think that is true for our generation you you have hit it on the nose there with that. I think mm-hmm. for our generation and I think for anybody in a, like a margin of error of five years, you mm-hmm. know, has uh, seen 2009 and 2019 as like a great period of change for the world and themselves. But yeah, you know, I certainly don't see like 
40-year-olds, uh, now 50, taking this time to reflect on that that change, right? I don't know. It feels like a tumultuous decade. I mean, I guess people could have said the same thing for, like, 2000 to 2010, but, like, social media wasn't as prevalent yeah. in 2010, so it, it just wasn't as much of, like, a meme going around. I mean, that's that's the main context in which I see the stuff that you're talking about, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, all the decade in review stuff would have been, like, from the news channel or something. That's... No, that's a good point. And, I mean, I also think what you're what you're saying about it just being an eventful decade is is more true than ever like this is this period of time very much feels more so like uh a decision point between whether or not we want to live in a hell world you know (laughs) so it's just one of those things it's like rise of nationalism and several different really important geopolitical countries and and uh, the rise of Trump and the rise of, uh, you know, so many different, like, right versus left groups and all these kind of things. So, yeah, it's unique. It's unique. Or it feels unique. Yeah, I mean, like, we haven't lived through anything like it. Yeah. <laughs> but what does that say? What does that say? Yeah, yeah it's, that's the tricky thing, too. I, I, yeah, whenever I grapple with the fact that I'm 26 and, um, just don't have actually is that big of a frame of reference when you really boil it down. Uh, it's hard to figure out, you know, what the, the actual meaning of things are at times, you know, it's like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, is this really just like a, a, a 26 year old reaction to this thing, you know, because my, my frame of reference isn't big. I've heard of people like, you know, even just as old as 30 or whatever, talk about like things stabilizing, you know, emotionally and, um, I don't know, maybe even ideologically as you get to that age, because you're, you've just seen more, you're just used to more. Right. Yeah. Uh, I remember my like intelligence and national security professor said that most revolutionaries are, you know, between like 28 or like 35 when they're most active. Mm. Uh, because they're old enough that their ideologies have settled and they're, like, sure of what they believe, but they're still, like, young and dynamic enough to go out there and and do it, Um, which is an an interesting sort of demographic group. Uh, But this is something that I, uh, I don't know, I've been mulling over to in that, like, most of my grad school cohort is, you know, a few years younger than me. And then, uh, being home with family, like, and, and talking with a, like a few teenagers and stuff, I I feel like we're often like dismissive of teenage opinions because like you look back on your own teenage opinions and think they're dumb. But when you were a teenager, you didn't really, you like, you obviously just chafed at everyone being dismissive of your opinions. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, it's it's not like they're they're not legit, uh, but there there are some things where it's like, well, maybe you just think that because you're a teenager. <laughs> but right, yeah, uh, right. uh, yeah, like her, it was it was a, like a family friend was over with her, with her kids, and one just turned thirteen, and she was talking about how it's hard to be a teenager, or how it's hard to be a teenager now, and I was like, <laughs> uh, you know. So, yeah, I, I don't doubt it. Like, it's always... Being a teenager is hard in general. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just uh, hard. You know. Uh, but you're just so convinced that no one has experienced what you've experienced <laughs> when, like, everyone has experienced <laughs> at least something like it. And and you're just so annoyed at having to hear that over and over again yeah. <laughs> until you grow up and realize <laughs> that it's, like, kind of true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. I, I'm getting from what you're saying a lot of <laughs> how do I not become the monster that terrorized me well, when no, I was a teenager? Yeah. Yeah, not, I don't mean to, you know, not in that kind of strong terms, but sure. uh, but yeah, just how to navigate that, I guess, because uh, you, I don't know, I, I, I do, I've 
had it with like little kids too of like talking with my little cousins and trying to figure out what they're telling me that like is actually important and what <laughs> it is just like the bullshit that little kids say because yeah. it pops into their head. Uh, because sometimes like if they're hurt or scared or whatever, like they're actually hurt or scared. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, okay, you, you bumped your knee. You can stop crying. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, like, what do I need to take seriously from you? Uh, and like, what do I need to like actually, you know, hold and nurture and support you? And so what do I need to tell you to just like brush off? Mm. <laughs> but you, you, like that kind of thing. So it, and, and then with, with teenagers, it's, you know, similar dynamic, but in different contexts. <laughs> Definitely. I no, I get where you're coming from with that. It's, it's still signaling and like figuring out what signals matter. I have that all the time with my four year old nephew where, yeah, sometimes they just do stuff for attention. Cause <laughs> yeah. that's like their whole world is like getting the attention of adults, you know? Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about teenagers is like, their whole it's not their whole world anymore but it's still like 70 percent of their world is you know like it's still 70 percent of their world is getting the attention of adults yeah it's like I've also oh go ahead no i mean i was just gonna yeah it's it's just like anything that you you need you still can't fully provide you for yourself you know you still have to ask for an adult for a ton of things right but yeah i i recently put tiktok on my ipad and that is just a wild scene like the the teens on tiktok it's hilarious like once you once you get into it a little bit like you see the the patterns and uh like the different groups and all that on there but like one of the tiktok memes is the like token 25 year old or like person older than 25 on tiktok and it's it's always just like what are you doing here (laughs) and and it's hilarious um but you know some of some of the like shit that they make is you know pretty good and like pretty intelligent and thought out so there are times where i'm like wow you're actually like a pretty developed person right uh and then there are other times where like they'll make a joke or something, and I'm like, I don't know if you understand the joke that you're making. <laughs> like, <laughs> the duality uh, of the teen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I had I had yeah. similar experiences with that. Just with yeah. being a, a a counselor for high school campers, or sometimes you they would say some or do something really like profound, and it's like, wow, you're a developed person. And then other times, immediately afterwards, they pick like the dumbest fight in the world. yeah uh yeah i think i think that i saw your your tiktok direct link like not like a link to a Mm -hmm. twitter with a tiktok yeah like and i was like what does this preface (laughs) man they're addicting they're 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 like longer than vines so you can do a little Mm -hmm. bit more um i I don't know if TikTok has some learning algorithm that like slowly tailors it based off of like what you sit through. I know that there's at least like a a geographical filter on it because like when I'm in Texas, I'm getting all these like Texas ones. And when I was in North Carolina, there would be a lot of like North Carolina specific ones. Uh, but uh, now I'm just getting a lot of like Star Wars ones. I'm just like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also just a lot, a lot of horniness on TikTok because they're all just, like horny teens. But man, that, and that definitely gets a little awkward. But <laughs> I bet. I like. I don't know. There, there's some, there's some good shit, and they, and then there's also just a lot of memes about high school of like when the teacher says this or whatever right, right. <laughs> and uh and it's funny because i'm both like far away from that life and also just kind of returned to it in that mm. like i'm going back to college <laughs> but uh yeah yeah i see those memes occasionally and i a part of me does chuckle like even though i've been out of school for a while but mm-hmm. you you can still remember it, you know, and still, yeah, still, it takes you back almost. It's like they're almost nostalgic for me, at least, seeing those. 
memes about uh you know yeah whatever kind of high school hall monitor bs stuff that you have well yeah one thing that gets me again with just like the political focus is like kids growing up in this environment and thinking like this is just what politics is (laughs) and uh Mm. and i'm just like well or you know whenever they're just like oh well you know conservatives think this and i'm like they didn't always (laughs) (laughs) or uh like all there are a bunch of uh tiktoks that just kind of make fun of the uh, of like the current culture wars where it's like Today in class, the teacher says, like, we'll be discussing feminism, and then uh, they'll play, like, the good, the bad, and the ugly in the background, and it's, like, <laughs> the girl with blue hair looks up, and, like, the super conservative kid who wears his suit, like, looks <laughs> up, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm just, like, man, to y'all, this is, like, just what society is oh. like, but it wasn't always this way. <laughs> yeah. It's a generation raised inside the fucking funhouse. Yeah. Like all the fucking goofy ass mirrors. That's just that's just what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Your body is just a weird little S shape or whatever. That's mm-hmm. fucking wild. I yeah. never really thought about that, but that is true. I mean, I I'm trying to think of it too in the sense of because we grew up in the Bush era. Yeah. And there were certain differences then, but. Hmm. I don't know if I don't know if the if it's the same. It doesn't feel the same at least. No. It, like I I don't know. I mean, obviously not being an adult for the Bush era, I can't judge the like level of liberal panic under Bush versus under Trump. I mean, I remember there was all the like angst about surveillance and like the war yeah. on terror. And, uh, but then, you know, like once surveillance got privatized through social media, it just kind of like became (laughs) a joke and everyone's used to it, (laughs) but like we expect it now. Right. Uh, Yeah. uh, So I, there, just looking back at like V for Vendetta and, uh, like fucking like children of men, children of men holds up, I guess, but like the, those kind of like dystopian stories from like 2005, Mm -hmm. uh, where it's just, uh, there'll be some, uh, you know, like dictatorial turn, uh, with this like massive surveillance state. Yeah. And then like you compare it to today and it's like what you didn't anticipate is that it would be super dumb. (laughs) 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 Oh my god. But I think I think what you didn't anticipate it would be super dumb. That's just it though. Like that's that's everything. That's that's how it is for so much fictional media. Like every time I watch or I absorb sci-fi and different stuff. I'm like, the main problem, the main thing I think that's unrealistic about whatever you've just created for me is that it's not nearly dumb enough. Like, no, I, it's going to look I've so been, messy, you know? I've, I've been talking to people uh, about, like, the Star Wars prequels also in, like, this context of the decade in review. Mm. One with, like... Uh, comparing them to the sequels because now there's a lot of like revisionist history that the sequels were or the prequels were actually good which they weren't like like they weren't they were still Mm. bad movies i think i think uh revenge of the sith is actually like a legit good movie but um the prequels as a whole were still dumb and and but they at least had like a plan Versus the sequels are just, like, two directors fighting about what they think Star Wars should be in front of everybody. And there's just <laughs> no coherence to what the story is or where it's going. And, um, How fitting they should be on the holidays. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, like, the, the prequels at least had, like, an A and a B Right. And you knew, like, and it was all coherent. But uh, the thing that um, I've been talking to people about is, like, you know, I used to think the politics in the Star Wars prequels was, like, the weakest part. It's what everybody complained about because it was, like, boring 
dumb and unrealistic. <laughs> and then you get to today where all of our politics is about <laughs> trade <laughs> and like votes of no confidence. Uh... <laughs> And how, and just like all this endless debate about how the Republic no longer functions. <laughs> and, and I'm like, wow, you know, I used to think this was dumb, but then reality caught up. So like the prequels, me, looking back, are like really hold up. Oh my God. <laughs> you have done me, you have done me great and terrible harm. <laughs> it's because the whole time you were talking about that too. I was like, oh, God, he's right. And then I was also <laughs> like, oh, man, it's so dumb how in that prequel series, it's so obvious Palpatine's evil. Like, he looks <laughs> evil. Like, he's all fucked up. Like, he doesn't have any real charisma that, like, is, is visible to most sane people. And I'm just, like, thinking about that. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. That's all of them. <laughs> That's all of them right now. Yes. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's something. Well, that's that's praise I never expected the prequels to get, but I I think it's probably the most fair praise I've heard for it. There's the prequels are so interesting. Prequels for sequels is super interesting. Now I I do have to mm-hmm. say I I still haven't seen the last one yet, but. The and I don't I haven't formulated my own opinion even really, but I've heard from a lot of friends and it is interesting. There are these like saving graces of the prequels, but they're kind of just lost under how catastrophically bad the execution was. Yeah, like like it's almost like there's just no forgiving the execution. There's no forgiving the direction, the writing and the acting like you, those are three things you just can't fuck up all at once. Like, you know, like at least yeah. two have to be decent. And, and it, but right. it's it's curious where like I'll talk with um, with uh, different friends and they will point out like what you're saying. Like, oh, but there is a through line, right? Like there mm-hmm. is like an actual plan and it goes through. And they'll say things like, you know, oh, it was genuinely different than what star wars had presented it was not a rehash say what you will about it it was unique and uh similarly like the designs were unique the like actual worlds and like some of the art behind it was interesting and the music and the score was fantastic so there are these like weird saving graces that almost make you think the prequels are movies (laughs) but then well and and the sequels two out of three are right. competently executed right uh, of like there's there's like good acting good direction as an individual movie there's like a, a through line and like you know it's efficient storytelling of yeah. like force awakens like the the way ray is introduced is great and then there's a, a i mean you can complain about it like all the fan service and stuff but you know they they efficiently introduce the new characters and give them something but then there's just no like depth or there's no like there there to the story yeah like there there's all this like you know like the effects are great the you know the the individual shots are great uh you know all John Williams is still doing the music uh but when you're asked to do the like a to b of the sequel trilogy (laughs) uh both in substance and also in sort of like all the you know cinematic cues that the two directors do there's just (laughs) like the arrow it's not a straight line it's just squiggling all over the place and getting lost yeah it's very true the actual a to b and the the lack of really like a lot of original concepts or when they mm-hmm. are original they're like <laughs> they're depressingly gauche and <laughs> yeah it's it's very true but what you what you said about two of the three things being on point i think it's just so huge you know like whether it's directing or writing or 
you know, the effects or something like so much of that, that surface level stuff, the sequels really nail. And Mm -hmm. I think it is really a part of what makes them have such like a weird cultural position now where some people will be like, I liked it. You know, if you didn't like it, fuck off. Uh, and then other people being like, you have no taste and like all this. Right. (laughs) And so it's, yeah, it, it, it does to me feel like so many modern movies have kind of gotten the formula down for just good direction, good acting and like solid writing, you know, uh, there are so many movies now that have all three or like two and a half or two fully. Mm -hmm. And so it always seems like it creates such a a weird conversation around any piece of film where it's like there's the snob that's pointing out how this really isn't still that great, you know, despite having satisfied these things that were like once hard to satisfy that it's just still, you know, the actual meat, like the actual thing that's tough to do, the, the creative concepts and the delivery of that still isn't there. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I don't know, but that's the thing that I like about sci-fi, and, you know, we've talked about, uh, like, the three-body problem. I'm sensitive to segue. Uh, but, like, the thing about sci-fi is often the writing is ass, and the characters <laughs> don't really matter, but, like, there's one good idea, yes. like, one really good interesting like profound idea that often just propels a story or like the story is just set up to like present this idea and like the particulars of the story don't even matter (laughs) but but there's like this nice core that can save a book yes and make it like fun to read um and yeah i think so many of the the stories that we have now are either just like rehashes reboots which that's an old kind of cliche uh complaint now but it's either that or it's just like all it is is window dressing like it's it's like you have a pie that's only whipped cream (laughs) and there's no pie under it all (laughs) and you're just like oh well right you what you and and you point that out, and people are like, "But the whipped cream is expertly done." <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I think I think that's a really apt metaphor. It's the whipped cream is tasty and it looks good, but like you let that shit sit in your stomach for a full day, and it's like, oh, gross. That's all sugar. That's not good for me. Yeah, yeah. I I agree, and I'll I'll be damned if I don't. Uh, use this segue that you've just given me uh, Go for, it. <laughs> uh, for 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 what it was clearly destined for um <laughs> yeah so i i i think that the especially in terms of the writing is ass and the characters don't totally matter um do sometimes apply to a book we've both read recently um which is the second book in this in the um remembrance of earth's past or uh three body problem series uh which is the dark forest and yeah i mean it is a really interesting contrast isn't it like there's like 200 pages in the dark forest i would say about a full 200 pages that are just not that interesting not that well paced and it's kind of a struggle but the payoff is like so rich and the idea of the actual dark forest is like so dope that once you hit it, you're like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Wait, (laughs) hell yes. This is what I was here for. And that's so, that is so interesting compared to like a movie, you know, any of the sequel movies or so many movies these days where it's like every scene has almost something to recommend it. Like whether it's an act that a piece of acting or a line or just the raw effects. I mean, certainly there were scenes in the sequels, like the the whole ship cutting in half in The Last Jedi. They were great. Um, but yeah, the, all those things aren't that well considered, and they're all just like window dressing. And then it feels like this one is like a different pie, and it's like it's sitting out there on the sill, 
and it's got no whipped cream and there's like no <laughs> nice holes in it at all. The frills are kind of all fucked up and you're like, I'm not sure about this pie. <laughs> but you kind of just eat it and eat it and then you like you reach a point like midway through the pie where you're like, oh, this is, wait a minute, this is really good. This is a really strong, good aftertaste even though it looks kind of <laughs> shitty. <laughs> I did not see this podcast ending with prolonged pie metaphors, but here we are. No, neither did I. Neither did I. But honestly, that's how I've, I've wanted it to go for a long time. I just haven't been able to bring it there organically. So I tried to force oh it a lot, but I had to edit it. It's too forced. Yeah. Um, so... You and I both know the answer to this, but for the listeners to spoil the Dark Forest, can you tell us what the Dark Forest idea is and why you think it's so dope? Yeah, the the Dark Forest. So I'm going to do a little bit of Jay storytelling here, trademarked, um, <laughs> and provide a bit of backstory first. Um, so the author, um, uh, Sushin Liu, of the books basically opens up his whole series by talking about how a lot of sci-fi has a really rosy idea of aliens and interacting with aliens and that either the aliens will help us in some way or we will be able to beat the aliens uh, if they don't want to help us. And so he kind of says early on, I think this is naive. I think there's plenty of reasons to even hide from aliens and to be skeptical about other forces in the universe. And he plants that seed early on in the first book. And the Dark Forest, fittingly, is the realization of that seed. So the Dark Forest idea is that based off of like very simple game theory about how um, societies would operate in uh, basically an environment that is really, really information lacking, you can expect that if one society in the universe, in the great expanse of the universe, encounters another society, they're just going to wipe that society out before the other society can encounter them. And this is like kind of a strange idea just presented at face, but it's interesting for a lot of reasons. One, because it explains sort of the, the like the Fermi paradox, right? Um, where there's a lot of space in the universe and statistically there should be life just based off of how much space there is, but we just simply can't find it. So it's a really grim explainer for the Fermi paradox, which says, well, basically all life just kills any other life as soon as right. it sees it. Like it's just not even going to take the risk. And that's part one of why it's interesting. The second part of why the dark forest idea is interesting is because essentially the explanation for it is that, in a world where you have like cultures and you have easy communication, you resolve any problems that occur in game theory and you don't need to go through such a drastic like rubric uh, or just such a drastic like uh, Nash equilibrium kind of, of, of outcomes. You can talk things out. But when you're having you're dealing with two civilizations that are like so, so, so far apart that even communication is going to take decades um, and that the means of reaching each other is going to like necessitate really, really powerful science that is like going to be super destructive in one way or another. Um, you essentially run into like a huge chain of suspicion and any, uh, planet is going to be really suspicious of the other. And they're going to have no way to allay that suspicion whatsoever. Like there's no way for them to say, you know, call them up and learn about them or to uh, engage in frequent diplomacy or frequent cultural interchange that would like reduce that suspicion and reduce essentially just the lying game between the two of them. And then between that and generally speaking, um, what like Sushin Liu kind of terms is like this explosive growth of civilizations compared to a slow growth of the universe, resources are always uh, like at a, a very, very small uh, like competitive margin. So essentially every every space society needs to compete very heavily for resource and if they find any other resource from any other society they can expect that that society might come over and conquer theirs just for that resource and i think that's that's the dark forest 
Yeah, and so the the dark forest is then sort of the metaphor for um, the emptiness of the universe in that it's not actually empty, just the way that when you walk through a forest and it looks quiet, uh, that, like, the forest is not actually empty. It's that all the living beings are hiding from each other uh, because the only interaction is through violence and, and competition and through, like, the kind of violence that leads to like the extinction of uh civilizations who are found yep yeah and it's it's a really cool metaphor explained in a really interesting way where you know you Mm -hmm. have all these hunters roaming through a dark forest and in the book itself it culminates in an experience an experiment to like prove that this theory is true where essentially um the uh sort of lead scientist guy shoots out these radio coordinates to hit the sun to make this sort of red herring and show that this this sun this solar system has life and then they're going to just track and see if anything happens to that sun and then the sun just like fucking explodes and the whole solar system gets eradicated and then the theory behind it is okay they thought life was there and whether or not life was there the move was to destroy it because if life wasn't there no problem. The universe is so big, you'll find other opportunities. You'll find other things. You don't need to worry about it. If life was there, you need to destroy it because of this chain of suspicion, because of all these issues. It will come to destroy you if you don't. Yeah. So it's a super interesting idea. And I loved what you'd sent me uh, in, in Messenger after you'd read it, which was, uh, something along the lines of that looking up at space was a lot more sinister. Yeah. It just, it seems a lot more like ominous when you look at a, a night sky right. and you see all the points of life and yeah, it seems a lot more just foreboding the, the emptiness of space than, you know, uh, it did before. Yeah, which is pretty legit. My my reaction was a little bit opposite in that when I read that, I think the first thing I said was, oh, wait, fuck, that's sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think was sort of out of respect of just the the thinking. The idea Mm -hmm. was cool, you know, and also something almost like childishly or like teenagely cool about the idea of just like powerful space civilizations just like fucking wiping each other out you know (laughs) um yeah so the lead up to the dark forest though uh was it was it at at points a little bit it dragged for me did it drag for you um i think i read through it fast enough that it didn't feel like it um but like your point about the uh, translation being worse, like I agree with that. Uh, then like the the first book seems a lot more kind of poetic, and there just whenever he uses like a prolonged metaphor, it came off a lot prettier in the first book, and yeah. the second book read more like a technical manual. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and. <laughs> Part of me wonders if it's just because the second book grows technical, which is part of why I'm mm-hmm. really interested in reading the third, because I know that the translator of the first book returns. So I'm excited to see how much of it was translation. But yeah, there's a lot of really long and uh, I think really almost kind of clumsy sentences, which I think is one way to sort of approach Chinese too, because in in Chinese, like, it's common to write longer sentences with less punctuation um, so that it can Mm. seem like the language is very run on, but I don't necessarily think that that's like the actual tone and tenor. It's more just, they just use less periods or in commas for, for whatever reason. Um, So I feel like that might have been what leaked through, but then at the same time, it's kind of like, eh, I never, I'm not that good at Chinese. So making that supposition, you know, it's like, eh, eh. That's, that's not an unreasonable supposition. Like I've, I've read, uh, like some of Marx in German and it, like, 
all of his run-on sentences and stuff like that. That's how they are in in German, and it's just the Germans think that that's stylistically prettier than we do in English. <laughs> and you know, like I don't know if you like reading the the old Federalist Papers. It's like that kind of writing where you have a sentence that takes up right. a whole page, and yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the like the the Germans just. Um, I I asked a German about it one time, and uh, he said. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate the the um, compromise between the Enlightenment and the, the Romantics was just that we get really long, flowery sentences now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's well. That's the interesting thing too, and that like a lot of modern Chinese literature, at least some of it, kind of has some foundation too in like a literary movement that stressed simpler, easier to understand things, like rather than the mm-hmm. long Confucian sentences. Um, but there are certain times where like, uh, Liu's book really does kind of remind me of like the old epics in in, in mm. ancient China, like, uh, three kingdoms and stuff like that. And these old epics like go on for so long. They're, they're usually, you know, four volumes of like thousand page books and they're hyper dense and they constantly introduce this fluctuating cast of characters that will come in and come out and reemerge and then go back into the background and you kind of just have to track them. And that's really how Liu approaches characters too. That's what's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. And I, you, you kind of hinted at this earlier when you were talking about sci-fi being ass, but uh, it's, it's definitely a truth in, in Liu's world where he, he's not, he did, he's not bad at making characters, I would say. I think he he has a really good but just formulaic approach where he's like, okay, I'm going to reverse engineer this. This character is meant to do this thing. What traits would that character need to do that thing well? Right, yeah. Well, he said it himself in, in that like interview that I saw with him where he was like, yeah, I really don't care about the characters. Like, I just need to tell, like, I have a story that I want to tell and then I just put people in that make sense. Right, right. Yeah, and that's like what he'll do. And I think he'll jazz it up a little bit by giving them like a few quirks or Mm -hmm. giving them like a, you know, just a few things that will round them out and make them not like totally mechanical. But But it is more things happening to them than them driving the story. It's very true. Yeah, even even when there are characters that really do like determine a lot of things like Zhang Beihai and others like... Mm -hmm. Even still, even still, you kind of get this deterministic vibe from reading them. And there's a lot of the way that their actions, too, are sort of more put up to their period. And to like, especially in the second book, where like the effect of the period of history you grew up in is something like he he discusses all the time. Uh, So there's a lot of way that like everything gets put up outside of their actual individual autonomy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's an it's an interesting thing. I I didn't necessarily mind that because I mean it was curious. Like it's almost like War and Peace, like Tolstoy does that a lot in War and Peace too. And then it like breaks up his own book with like an eighty page rant about the Hegelian dialectic. Um <laughs> and this is a classic of literature. Yeah. Uh but fucking uh speaking to three body problem, like or dark forest it has a similar thing to where everybody's sort of deterministic but still interesting but in the second book it definitely wore on me a little bit like there were times where characters really just weren't that interesting and he would just introduce or kill people in ways that like i did not understand (laughs) like he the one that mystified me and maybe the third book will explain it was that he killed off john behai and I was like, why? That dude was cool. <laughs> I knew him. <laughs> like, there, I don't know that many people anymore. I, I'm looking forward to you reading the third book uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, but yeah, he does just kill off characters. Um, but I think a lot of his, the, I guess, more like controversial aspects of his kind of mechanistic thinking about society and um like culture and and things like that uh come out in the third book 
just like really strongly. Mm. Uh, and so I'm just stoked to get your reactions to that. Oh man. I don't, I, I now I don't know how to feel. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like it's, yeah, it, because it's one of these things that frustrated me away from microeconomics because mm-hmm. microeconomics is like, you know, it's inherently more simple because in some ways, at least because it's explaining things at like a smaller level and like zooming in, uh, or at least more almost like rational. So I feel like a lot of the problems or the things that I didn't like about micro and studying micro was that, you know, certainly these different like equilibriums and these different, uh, preferences you could map out and like, they did have practical, uh, applications in the real world. But when you got really wide, like, and when you got to a macro level, people just start behaving a lot differently, which is where macro comes in in the first place. And it just felt to me in this book that it was just like so much micro, like so much of this, like, (laughs) oh yeah, well, this is just like how people would, you know, react and, and work based off of like these sort of, um, equilibriums and these like most efficient outcomes. But it's like, well, when you get to a micro, a macro level, you get to a lot of paradoxical behavior because you're introducing a shit ton of humans to each other at once. And it's like paradoxes are just almost bound to arise from that much consciousness. I don't know. So it, or like, you know, like a prime example is like the paradox of thrift, where if once, a, you know, um, once a society like an economy starts to collapse, um, everybody starts to save because that's the most sensible option to do. That's what you, what, what you'd want to do when all the money's going away. You want to make sure you have some just in case. But the paradox of this is that it actually makes the economy weaker and it makes everyone's money worth less because the economy gets weaker. So in reality, you should be rallying and pushing against that. Right. And I don't know, stuff like that. I just feel like doesn't resonate as much in his books and, Oftentimes it would be like an aside or whatever, but some of his society would just, especially because in the second book, he really creates his own societies. Some of his societies to me just felt like unrealistic on a deep level because they weren't stupid enough. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, again, it it is just kind of taking this dialectical approach and and kind of hyper rational view of, of where he thinks things would go. Um, I, I recently read a book about strategy that, um, you talking about micro reminded me of because there's a, there's an interesting paradox in strategy where, uh, like one, the, uh, the, the goal of strategy is not to predict an outcome, but to change it like through your behavior, you're going to like affect the outcome. Uh, and so like trying to understand the interplay between your choices and like your opponent's reaction is like the, the hardest thing to do. But a paradox of strategy is when you have a really effective uh, strategy, it is self-defeating in that you have created really high incentives for the enemy to try and counter it. <laughs> um, so, like, the example he uses is, like, the air war between Britain and Germany in World War Two, where there were just these wild swings of the effectiveness of bombing raids, where, like, the new tactics would be introduced and the, the British would mm. inflict more damage and then the Germans would respond, create more effective air defenses and then shoot down more bombers so that they were actually they were actually inflicting more economic damage on the British by shooting down the British bombers than the British were by bombing German factories. <laughs> and, um, and like this went back and forth like up until the end of the war, basically. But then he said, when you have... It leads to this paradox where you have like a marginally effective strategy or something that's like halfway effective, then the incentives are lower to counter it. So those end up being more like the gains from those kind of inefficient uh, strategies end up being more durable in the long term because the enemy just hasn't bothered to <laughs> counter it. <laughs> and so then oh, you talked about like pontoon bridges how they're like cheap enough to produce they're relatively easily destroyed but the enemy like most armies don't uh think of ways to like completely 
negate pontoon bridges because it's not worth it. Right. So they're still like they're still being used, you know, like even though on the if you just look at it from sort of the the micro perspective, like this is pretty easy to destroy. So like why bother deploying it? Right. <laughs> or <laughs> um so is is that kind of thing? Right, um, right. And I, but on the macro level it's actually pretty efficient because it doesn't cost right. you much in terms of time or resource. Right. I have about five minutes of recording left, just letting you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, God. I feel like now, now, now I'm like, oh boy, how do I spend these last five minutes? <laughs> <Yeah>. What's... <laughs> They're suddenly more valuable. <laughs> I know. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I wonder how that happened. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Fuck. Well, regardless, I, I, that's a really, really weird thing about strategy. I mean... I can see what you're saying, though, and I think that's, like, that's often what was lacking in the second book, and this was this is something, like, a phrase that I've used, too, and it's a phrase that you use that is, that's very good, which is just, like, it's just the Civilization Five model of history. <laughs> you're, like, yeah. I was hesitant to, like, put it quite as bluntly as you did, but you're correct in, in, in saying it how you did, which was just that, like, a lot of the second book is you know seems like written from the perspective of a person who didn't study politics you know yeah and yeah i don't know it's just that that's probably one of my biggest downsides of the whole thing and, and having to read through like 200 pages of a society like that where i'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't feel real at all to me yeah yeah well i mean i guess buckle in for the the third book i don't know we're we're setting ourselves up for for a cliffhanger ending now. Between now and the next podcast, you have to watch Rise of Skywalker and oh boy. start uh, the next book. I don't expect you to read the next because the next one, like the last book, I think is also the longest. I don't mm. know. It at least feels longest, man. <laughs> it's split up into like three parts, oh, <laughs> and uh, ends with the heat death of the universe. <laughs> like spoiler alert! Hell so. yeah. <laughs> That's my brand, the heat death of the universe. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but yeah. And I mean, at this rate, like that doesn't surprise me that much just because (laughs) of how increasingly insane the books gets, which I'll recommend this series for that almost alone. Like it just constantly ups the ante in ways you could, you could never, you're not going to predict it. Yeah, that is one thing that I like about it, where it starts in a pretty, like, grounded place, like, China during the Cultural Revolution, where it's, like, pretty gritty and, like, actually right. just historical, like, it's not even sci-fi, but then it just ratchets up to, all right, now that we've established this weird concept, <laughs> like, we're going to build up, yeah. Yep. Yeah, like that is now the foundation for this tower I'm building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's great about that. He's great about yeah. like scaffolding and like planting a seed, and then just like having it pop up like way later, which is one thing that's cool about the second book. But also one thing that I do think he pushes it too far at times. Like some of the some of the wall facer wall breaker stuff to me was just like almost cheesy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have come to tell you how your plan has failed, good Sarah. And then the other person is like, my brain is broken now. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, all right. that's the kind of thing where his whole like wall phaser wall breaker stories are the, the exemplification of the cliche that um, amateurs obsess about strategy and professionals obsess about logistics. <laughs> Whereas like if any of these wall phaser plans, like they're bo- either their plans as presented or their actual plans like, went to a military staff somewhere, they would be like, no, this is dumb. <laughs> like, you want us to actually deploy and implement this? <laughs> like, do you realize, like, the industrial base that we have to retool to make 50,000 gigantic hydrogen bombs? <laughs> <laughs> right. That one was absurd, too, because I was like, for the same effect, you could just nuke the entire surface of the universe, or the, the Earth. <laughs> And yeah. just for, for clarification on that, he was going to use the hydrogen bombs to explode the sun so that it, like, fucking ate the, the solar system and fucked both worlds. Which, great negotiation strategy, like, good mad dog principles or whatever, but, like, you have nukes, 
You have so many yeah. nukes. Like, we already can destroy the world in, like, the capacity to live on it for fucking millennia. Yeah. Like, his plan was to push Mercury into the sun. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's some Lex Luthor shit right there. It was so unnecessary. <laughs> it was so unnecessary. I, and it, yeah, I don't know. It's... It, that's that's a great that's a great uh, point about the amateur versus the professional because yeah it was there it was there but honestly good book despite despite yeah. like all the shit talk it's actually <laughs> two thumbs way up yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> weirdly enough two thumbs way up yeah okay Jay how much time do we have left fifty five seconds oh my god oh my god uh, what, what what are your plans for the new year. Uh, I'm just gonna be on the ranch, just chilling. Oh, cool. So, my aunt and I will watch uh, whatever the Ryan Seacrest <laughs> drop the ball. <laughs> what about you? Gotcha. Um, oh, d- did Narbles visit you this year? <laughs> no, I was a good boy this year. <laughs> <laughs> good year. I'm glad. I'm glad. Did get a visit from Black Pete, weirdly, not being the Netherlands. <laughs> Uh, must have been lost. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Alright, till next time. <laughs> <laughs> till next time, man. Peace.